You all can be seated. Uh, you can open up your copy of the Bible, if you have one, to the book of Hebrews chapter 6. That's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the last uh, several verses of Hebrews chapter 6. We'll get to the end of the chapter uh, by the end of this morning, Lord willing. But I uh, just want to say a, a special welcome again to you if you're a guest uh, here at our church this morning. If it's your very first time or one of your first few times, um, you could fill out one of those connection cards that's on the back of your program, or there's a QR code on there that could push you to a digital version of it as well. Uh, that'll help us to know who you are, start to get connected with you. And if you are new-ish to the church, uh, if this is your third Sunday, for example, to be here, uh, every month we do what we call a coffee with the pastors. Uh, we're going to do it tonight. If you'd like to come back at six, you don't have to sign up. You just show up, uh, but it'll be over in room 112 on this side of the building. Uh, we'd love to have some of you who are newer to the church. If you'd like to learn some of what we're about, what we believe, how we operate, uh, get to meet some other folks, ask questions, things like that. We'd love to have you join us tonight at, at six o'clock. And then before we get toward the text too, I just want to say thanks as always for your generosity as a church, uh, for you taking of the resources that God has given to you and then sacrificially, generously giving to the common fund of our church. And uh, I am really encouraged. I get a front row seat to see how some of those funds are used. Much of it, most of it is used here locally. But one thing I was just reminded of this morning even for some reason was of how the contributions we make as a church get to go to our denomination and even to uh, church plants that are happening in the U.S. and all over the world. We got to go to our, our pastor's conference a few weeks ago and it was wonderful to hear about uh, church plants that are trying to be started in our region like in North Manchester and Western Pennsylvania. There's one. There's also church plants happening. There's a, a, a Spanish-speaking church seeking to be planted in Yuma, Arizona, and a Chinese-speaking church uh, that's seeking to be planted out on the East Coast, and not to mention an abundance of them all over the globe. And so part of, a small part of what you give into even our common fund gets to go to our denomination to help uh, support not just people we've sent out from our church, but that we've sent out from our denomination uh, to plant churches. So thank you for your generosity. Uh, may the Lord continue to, to provide for us as a church through our, our collective giving of what he has given to us. I trust that you have found Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, you'll see why in a moment, but I've been thinking of uh, the concept of swearing this week, and when I say swearing, I want to say right off the bat, I'm not talking about cussing or cursing. I'm talking about swearing in the sense, in the other sense of how we use it, where uh, when we swear, we are trying to convince people, hopefully honestly, that we really mean what we say. Like what I'm either pledging to do or what I'm saying is true, it really is the truth. I really do mean it. And we do this in all sorts of domains, right? When somebody is about to be installed into a new important office, like a, a presidency or something like that, we have a swearing-in ceremony, right? Where they make commitments to show how serious they are about those commitments. Or maybe in a whole different domain that's more common to us, uh, when we get angry, Sometimes do we not find ourselves even sinfully saying, I swear you better never do that again. Like we mean you better never do that again. Okay? Or when a witness is, is to testify in court, they have to put their hand sometimes on a Bible or they at least have to swear that they're going to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, right? Uh, and when we swear, when we make these oaths, a lot of times what we do is we invoke someone's name, like a greater thing or a greater person even than ourselves, right? We may say things like, uh, like in a court, I swear on the Bible, like what I'm about to say is true, or we uh, say kind of strange things sometimes, this may be not as strange, we say, 
I swear on everything holy, like that comes out of our mouth sometimes, or we say whatever this means, I swear to goodness. Like what does that mean? You swear to goodness. Kenny Rogers in his famous song, he said, I swear, I'm not going to sing this, but by the moon and the stars and the sky, right? He's appealing to something higher than himself, bigger than himself, or on the playgrounds, God bless all our moms. When I was a kid, we would say, I swear on my mother's life. God's grace in protecting our moms for all those false uh, vows and oaths uh, that we would make. But we swear by things bigger or better, people bigger and better than us. But swearing in that way, it feels really human, not divine. Like it's something we do as human beings, right? Because as humans, we can lie, right? As humans, we have lied to people. And so we sometimes need to persuade them, I really mean what I'm saying, or when it comes to promises. We can make sometimes flippant promises that we really have no intent to keep. Or sometimes we've broken our promises to people. And so we need some way to tell people, I am dedicated to this. I'm serious that I'm going to keep my word. That type of swearing is a very human thing to do. It doesn't feel divine. It feels really beneath God, right? Like he, he shouldn't have to do this. Like God this is beneath God to swear in that way. But what we're going to see in today's text is that God has sworn. Like in one incident in particular where God did swear something to Abraham. And what we're going to see as we come to this text is we're going to see not just that God swore, but we're going to see why he did. Why did he condescend to do this? Why did he stoop down to swear something to Abraham? And what does it have to do with us? And I think what you're going to see through this text is this ancient swearing of God has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with me. And so we're going to come to this text here in just a moment. I'll read, I'll start in verse 13 and I'll go down through the end of the chapter. But uh, just to help you get up to speed, if you haven't been with us, as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, what we've seen is it's, it's like a letter, almost like a sermon, but more like a written letter that a person we don't know who wrote to a group of early Christians who had a Jewish background, thus the name Hebrews, right? And what we see through the letter at different points is that they were experiencing mistreatment, and they were experiencing being stigmatized, becoming kind of outcasts, being, uh, being pushed to the margins, being hurt precisely because of their faith in Jesus. It wasn't just like accidental or random. It was because they had placed their faith in Christ that these hardships started to come to them. And they're not sure they want to keep pressing on. They're not sure that they want to keep obeying Jesus, that they want to keep trusting in him if it's going to mean this mistreatment. And so what we see through the letter is time and time again, this author is calling them to persevere in their faith, to not give up. Like what we saw last Sunday, to not get off the ship, like stay on the ship of Christ, stay tethered to him. And he does this in all sorts of different ways through the letter. If you were with us last week, you saw one way he tried to challenge or encourage them to persevere was through a really harsh warning. Like there was really bristling type of words that he gave to them to try to get them to persevere. It's like a chilling text to read. But in today's text, we're going to see him use a different tact. Uh, when he's trying to, this writer's trying to encourage him to press on, he's going to point back to this time that God swore, where God's made an oath, I will do such and such. That's what he's going to point them back to, to try to help motivate their ongoing faith in Jesus, okay? And so I want to pick up uh, where we are, Hebrews 6, verse 13, and then I'll end at the end of the chapter. So you can follow along in your copy of the scriptures. This is what the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to the Hebrew Christians. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, 
he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. The author here in this text, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, he points his readers, and God would point us, to a very specific incident that happened in the life of Abraham, an interaction that God had with him where God swore to keep his promise, uh, where God put himself on the line, swore to keep his promise. So I want to uh, walk through this text. I want to show you what that incident was that he's pointing back to and then why he was pointing, it, pointing them to it. Like what, what was the point of him referring back to this incident. So this incident that he's pointing his readers back to is, is this incident that happened back in Genesis chapter 22, uh, which we'll get there in a moment. But I, I want to remind you, he's writing this to the Hebrews, like to Jewish people, uh, these early Jewish Christians. So Abraham would have had a supreme place in their minds and hearts. He probably, more than, not more than Jesus, but in some ways a rival to Jesus, they viewed him with the utmost reverence, the utmost respect, that he was the patriarch of their religion, still is to this day, uh, this man Abraham. And so when this writer is referring to some interaction between God and Abraham, they would have known what he was talking about. They would have remembered the story. They would have known uh, what he was referring to. Uh, they would have been really familiar with the story, with the passage, but they may have, sometimes when we're familiar with something, we overlook things or we, we don't notice certain things about that story or about what happened. And I think that's what's happening here. He's pointing them back to the story they're familiar with to show them something in it that they may have missed. And so he points them back uh, to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, but they would have known, as they hear this, this, about this oath of God, they would have known the backstory of Abraham and God. They would have known, you know what, there was a bunch that led up to this story, this incident he's telling us about. Uh, they would have known that God had long had interactions with Abraham. And so uh, it's no coincidence, if you see in verse 15, Notice that he says that Abraham had patiently waited to obtain the promise. That implies that there was a lot of incidents that had happened leading up to what the story he's referencing. And so you may not know some of those. So I want to real briefly let you know the backstory so you can understand more what was happening when God swore something to Abraham in Genesis 22. That's what gets quoted here. But prior to that... They would have known this. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, that's when God's interactions with Abram started, before he was even called Abraham. Uh, God's interactions started with Abraham in Genesis 12, and God made this huge promise 
to Abraham, this initial promise. He said in Genesis 12, 2, he said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So he said, I'm going to bless you, and you, by extension, you're going to become a blessing to many more people. That was this initial promise that God gave to Abraham. But then years rolled by, and another incident, uh, Genesis chapter 15, Abraham's older now, still without a son, uh, but years had rolled by, and Genesis chapter 15, God illustrates that promise that he had given to Abraham. And he has Abraham come out under the night sky, and he tells him this in Genesis 15, verse 5. He tells Abraham, look toward the heaven, Abraham, and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And so it's like he gives him this picture as he looks up at the night sky, like, Abraham, your offspring are going to be as numerous as these stars. So years roll by again, though. And finally, at long last, and I'm skipping over a whole bunch, but finally, at long last, Abraham, this aging man, finally receives the promise of a son named Isaac. Uh, that, that God had promised him to make him a nation, but he hadn't yet given him a son. Now he finally does. He gives him this son, Isaac. But then many more years roll by, getting closer to the, the reference he's going to make in Hebrews 6. In Genesis chapter 22, there's this very famous story of Abraham. Most of you probably know it, where God tells Abraham to take this very son that he had granted to him, that Abraham had had to wait and wait and wait to receive. And now he's gotten older. God tells him at Mount Moriah, he says, go sacrifice your son to me. And Abraham humbly, obediently goes up the mountain with his son and he gets ready to sacrifice his son who he loves so dearly. And God in that moment meets him and he provides a ram in the thicket that can be sacrificed instead of Isaac. And that's what leads right up to this quote that the author of Hebrews 6 quotes in verse 14 of today's text. Did you see that? How he quotes something. The author of Hebrews quotes something in verse 14 where he quotes God as saying to Abraham, surely I will bless you and multiply you. That quote from God was at Mount Moriah right after Abraham had gotten ready to sacrifice Isaac. And I want to read to you the verse right before it and right after it because the readers of Hebrews would have known this. They would have known the story. And why is he talking about God swearing? I don't see a swearing thing in, in this text. I want to read you Genesis 22, verse 16 and 17. And you'll see why this author of Hebrews is using that story. Okay, so back there at Mount Moriah, right after Abraham had gotten ready to sacrifice Isaac, but God had provided a ram. This is what Genesis 22, 16 and 17 says. God, speaking through this angel of the Lord to Abraham, says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, this is the quote, I, sure, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. That's what the author of Hebrews 6 is referencing. He just references the very middle part of it, the surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's what the author of Hebrews is pointing to, what God said to Abraham in that moment. But what is there in the text is that God says, I am swearing to this. Like, I, by my own name, by myself, on my name, I am swearing to you, Abraham, I will keep my promise to you. I will do what I have said. And so God in that moment was trying to show Abraham his seriousness, trying to show him, remind him of his commitment to keep 
his promise. He, Abraham knew that God had been working to fulfill his promise. He had seen it come to fruition in the provision of Isaac. But God wants him to know, I'm going to continue keeping my promise. It's not ever going to stop. Like, I will continue to keep my promise. And I love how the author of Hebrews, as he quotes that, points out that God had nobody greater. There was no mom's life for God to swear on, right? No moon and the stars that were greater than him. He made everything. And so when he seeks to, to seal his word with a vow, with an oath, he's like, I don't know what else to appeal to other than myself. I'm telling you by my own name, by myself, Abraham, I will keep this promise. I will do what I have said. And so that's why, that's what happens. That's the story this author is referencing. But why did God do that? Like, why did God condescend to do that in that moment? What was he trying to accomplish by swearing in that way, by swearing by his own name? But one thing we can know for sure as we think, why would God do that? Is one thing we can know for sure is God did not need to do that, right? Uh, God never needs to swear something. When he promises something, when he says something, saying it once should suffice, right? Uh, when the things that are true about us as humans that sometimes necessitate swearing are not true about God, right? The, like we, like I kind of mentioned this earlier, but, but sometimes we kind of mid-course, we change our minds about things, right? Like we had a plan that maybe we told people, you know what, I'll do this, I'll show up as such and such, I'm committing to do this, but then our plans sometimes change. We learn new things, we feel different things, we sometimes change our plans. Swearing for us can make people know, no, no matter what comes up, richer, poorer, sickness, health, right? Like, I will do this. Like, swearing is a way to bind our future self. But God's purposes never change, right? He says in verse 17 in today's text that God's purpose is unchangeable. It has an unchangeable character to it. God's never going to change his mind kind of mid-course about what he's going to do. And as humans, sometimes we lie, right? Sometimes we leave out parts of the truth. We stretch the truth. We, or just sometimes we straight up deceive people but we know even in verse 18 of today's text, it is impossible for God to lie, right? God is not capable of lying. And so that motivation to swear is gone. Like we know when God says something, he is telling the truth. And so God doesn't change his mind like we do. God doesn't lie like we do. So there's no real need for him to make a vow. Like he says what he means and he does what he says right? Like, that is what God is like. It, there's a poetic way this is said in Numbers chapter 23. Some of you may have heard this text before. But this prophet Balaam, who isn't even a believer, he says this about, he even knows this about God. He says, God's not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And the rhetorical answers are, to that are, when he says something, he will do it. And when he's committed to something, he will stay committed to it. God doesn't need to vow anything. He should only have to say something once, right? So that's one thing we know. God didn't need to do it, yet he still does. And I, I, but another thing we can know, and this is fascinating to me, and it took me a while to see this in this text, but it's there, is another thing we can know about this situation is Abraham already believed God, Right? Like, Abraham didn't need persuaded, like, oh, God is, he, he made a promise, like, he's good, I keep, Abraham had for decades 
by that time been believing the promises of God. And that's the moment when God condescends and says, he swears, I will keep this promise, Abraham. I will keep it. He had, right when this quotation happens, Abraham had just raised a knife to sacrifice his only son. That's the degree of faith that Abraham had. Uh, that, that is what had taken place. And so God's not making this oath in that moment to convince Abraham to start believing, right? He's making an oath to help Abraham keep believing, like to press on in faith, to press on in trust, to keep trusting him, because who knows what was going on in Abraham's heart and mind in that moment? I don't know if you've ever contemplated that and tried to imagine being him in that moment at Mount Moriah. At minimum, there's relief and thankfulness for the provision of a lamb or a ram in the thicket. But might there also not have been temptations to, to doubt or to weariness? Or like, Lord, why? Like, what, why are you doing this? Like, why are you asking me to do this? Who knows what was going on in his mind or heart? Uh, this exhaustion, fear, doubt. But God wanted to reassure that man of whom he had asked so much that's almost unfathomable for us. He wanted to reassure him in that moment, Abraham, I will keep my promises to you. Like, I have kept them, I will keep them. Keep trusting me. So God meets him there and makes this oath, this vow to get him to keep trusting him. But what's even more fascinating in this text is that oath that God made to Abraham there at Mount Moriah, I don't think was just for Abraham's ears. I don't think it was just for Abraham and just the impact on him. That oath that God made there was to impact people like us. It was to impact people like the Hebrews who are receiving this letter. It wasn't just some historical event just for Abraham and God. It was recorded for people like us to read, for people like us to hear. And the way that I can show you that in this text is that the the author points out here uh, that in verse 17, look at verse 17, it says that God, in making that oath, that God desired to show more convincingly to who? To the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. God, even in saying that oath, was not just trying to speak to Abraham, but he was speaking to all the heirs of the promise, all the people who would be people of faith in the Messiah, God was speaking to them. He was trying to show something more convincingly to them, put himself on the line in his commitment even to them, not just to Abraham. And so I, would, I think the author of Hebrews, whoever he was, was wanting these recipients of it to, to, when they read Genesis 22, to not just imagine it as God saying it to Abraham, but as God saying it to them. Like, I will keep my promise. I will bless those who are united with my son, Jesus Christ. Abraham didn't have that full picture yet. But that oath of God at Mount Moriah was to encourage people well beyond Abraham. And I would say to all of you who are trusting in Christ today, that promise God made at Mount Moriah is for you to hear. It is for you to know wherever you are in life, God is keeping his promises to you. And God will keep his promises to you. He swears it. Like he has said it, he has promised it, but he has sworn it to all of his people. I will keep my promises to you. So what was he, what was he trying to communicate in that, right? What was, the, like, what was he trying to affect? What was he trying to, to change? I, I appreciate that he says, when God desired 
to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his promise. That's what he's trying to show is, hey, I have said it. That should be good enough. But now I'm swearing it like, no, for sure, for certain, I am keeping my promise. So he guarantees it with an oath, verse 17 says. And I so appreciate the compassionate heart that this shows of God the Father. Like, because he could have just said it once and let it be and just say, hey, I said it. Like, I, I said it once, like, he, sh- he should believe me, but God keeps saying it, and God even swears himself to the keeping of it. How many times do we as parents, we, if you're anything like me, if you're a parent in the room with a young child, there are times where we uh, ask when our kids have not been obeying us, and we've had to tell them something like three times, five times, ten times, and we do this little script, right? We say, how many times did I have to tell you to do that? And they'll like think in their head, I don't know, a lot, Dad, I don't know. Uh, And then we'll say this question, right? When we think it's a zinger, like, how many times should I have had to tell you? And they know the right answer to that. They'll say, one, one, Dad. Like, you should have had to tell me one time. And that's true, right? God could do that to us. Like, he could say, man, I made this promise to you. Like, I told you to trust me, and I only needed to say it once. I don't lie. I don't mess around. I I said you should trust me. Trust me. But God, in his compassion to us, knows it is hard for us to believe. Like, these things are grand and glorious and mysterious, and they are hard sometimes for us in our brokenness and our smallness to actually keep believing. And God doesn't just say, I already told you. He says, I will tell you again. Like, I will even swear myself to you that I am going to keep my promise to you, son or daughter. John Calvin wrote this about this text. He said, See how kindly God, as a gracious father, accommodates himself to our slowness to believe. As he sees that we rest not on his simple word, that he might more fully impress it on our hearts, he adds an oath. And he's saying that God knows it's hard for Abraham to keep believing. God knows it's hard for us to keep trusting. And so he condescends to our very human act of swearing and says, son or daughter, I swear to you, I'm keeping my promise. Like I, I have told it to you before, I'm telling you now, I swear to you, I will keep my promise. That is how God relates to us. He doesn't relate to us as this cold, I should have only had to say this once type of father, but I will say it again, and I will say it again, and I will say it again to reassure your heart. That is how God works with us. He knows that we are weak, right? He knows that our faith is weak. He created us. He knows us better than we know ourselves, but he condescends to Abraham, and he condescends to us, and to the promise that he has made, this text says he adds the oath, Like he had promised it, but now he adds this swearing, this oath, like I will keep it. I think that's what he's talking about in verse 18 when he says these two unchangeable things. I think it's God's promise and then God's oath, that these are unchangeable. He's promised it and he's committed himself to keeping that promise. And the author says that he provides those things, his his promise and his oath. I love how he says it in verse 18. He says that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I love that because God isn't just trying to convince you today factually that he keeps his promises. Just to know that, agree with that. He is trying to convince you of that. Like he will keep his promise. You need to know that. But he is trying to affect something in you. 
beyond that, deeper than that, right? He, he's not just trying to, to make you believe the right doctrine. He's trying to change your heart to actually keep trusting him, to persevere in your faith. He wants you to hold fast to the hope that has set, been set before you. When he made that oath, think about this. God didn't become more likely to keep his promises, right? Like, that's impossible. He didn't become more likely. But what he is planning to effect is that we will be more prone to believe him. Like, we will be more prone to endure in our faith. That's what he's trying to bring about, is this change within us, this endurance within us. Nothing is changing about him. He's trying to change things in us. And I so appreciate that idea he uses here of we who have fled for refuge. That is a beautiful image, a beautiful picture, because these Hebrew Christians, they would have been really familiar with these ancient cities. We actually talked about them when we went through Deuteronomy last year, called these cities of refuge uh, that God had given to his nation of Israel. He had designated these cities that when they were under certain types of threat or had certain forms of guilt upon them, they could flee the danger that was in their hometown and go to these cities of refuge and have protection. They could be insulated from the judgment that should be coming to them. And so they had this image of these places of refuge that they could go for safety and for security. And he is saying to these early Christians, we have fled for refuge. And he doesn't say it explicitly, but it's implied. We have fled for refuge to the person of Jesus. Not to some city, not to some town with walls around it, but we have uh, fled for refuge to Jesus. And we can do that with, with confidence of safety there because guilty people like us, we need refuge. You need refuge from the wrath of God. I need refuge from the wrath of God. And the only place we can find it is in the person of Jesus because he has borne the judgment for our sin that should be coming down on us, right? When he went to the cross, he bore the wrath, bore the judgment of God that should be coming down on me, that should be coming down upon you. He bore our guilt. He received our punishment at the cross. And he promises, God the Father promises, Jesus himself promises, anyone who flees, or flees for refuge and goes to Christ, in repentance and in faith in who he is and what he's done for us, he will receive us. He has received us into this place of refuge, this union with Jesus. We have fled to him and he has received us. We are safe from the wrath of God if we're united with Jesus. But some of you in the room today, some of you have not yet done this. Like he's writing to people who have already fled for refuge to Jesus. Some of you have not yet. You are outside of Christ. You're outside of that safe place of security with God the Father. And I am calling upon you today, turn to Christ. Some of you have been fleeing from Christ. You've been running away from him whether you realize it or not. You've been fleeing away from him, either feeling too guilty or thinking he wouldn't want you or you're just utterly rejecting him. But if you feel the guilt of your sin today, if you know, man, I am not safe, like I am under the judgment of God, I am telling you there is a place of refuge where you can flee. And it is the person of Jesus. It's not to becoming a better person. It's not to just come to this church where you must flee today. It's to Jesus himself. And if you do that, he will receive you and you will find refuge from the wrath that you deserve from God. That is gloriously good news for all of us to hear. That there is a place of refuge. 
Before ending this text, before turning to chapter 7, the author gives us a few pictures of sorts. Uh, When he gets to verse 19 and 20, and I I just want to take a few minutes to share what he is saying in these images, because some of it could get lost to us. I don't think we always understand what he's trying to get across with these pictures. Uh, But uh, these have deeply impacted me the last several days as I've I've thought about these, as I've meditated upon these. Some of these have like given rise to lyrics of hymns and things like that, even ones that we sing. But uh, he uses these images here. And any good English teacher, which I know we have some current or former English teachers in the congregation today, any good English teacher will tell you if you're writing things to not mix metaphors, right? Like to just keep them distinct. If you're trying to use some motif or something, just stick with that thing. Don't mix it with this one over here. It's just going to confuse people. Just stick with the, the one metaphor that you're using. But... I think we see from today's text the Holy Spirit isn't bound by such uh, customs, right? Like such conventional wisdom because the author of Hebrews, whoever it was, he, he mixes two metaphors, right? Uh, you see in what we read that he mixes this metaphor of an anchor being behind a curtain. Like what? Like what? Okay, an anchor or a curtain. Like just keep them apart. He slams them right together. And so I want to explain what he's getting at um, because this, I think and trust, and I've prayed that this would minister to your souls today, all of you who are united with Jesus. What is he talking about? An anchor behind a curtain. First he says, as he's talking about an anchor, he says, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, Right? I am one, probably like many of you, who prefers land to water. And so I don't know a lot about anchors. I don't know a lot about how they work. Um, But I do know enough about anchors that I know there's different types of anchors, right? There's different qualities of anchors. It's not just that an anchor is an anchor is an anchor is an anchor. There's different ones, and they need to be up to the task, right? Like they need to be suitable for what you're asking them to do. And he says that this one is sure and steadfast, an anchor for our souls. It is up to the task. Right, And uh, God, he is talking, I think, if I'm understanding this metaphor right, this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul being like those two unchangeable things, the, the promise of God and the oath of God. When you see pictures of anchors, you sometimes see the middle part and then those two prongs that come. Think of that way if you want, the, the promise of God and the oath of God, and that we have that as an anchor of our soul. And anchors are to keep us from drifting and they're to keep us from crashing, Right? They're to keep us near, and they're to keep us safe. And I so appreciate that when he's trying to think of a metaphor, he uses this metaphor of an anchor. There's other things he could have used, but he he talks about an anchor, and an anchor implies that there's going to be storms, right? An anchor, you don't need an anchor in calm waters. You don't need, when you're in smooth seas, you typically don't need an anchor. You're not in danger of drifting much or of crashing. But when he uses this metaphor of an anchor, it's, it implies very strongly in it that we are going to get thrown around in life. That there's going to be storms that brew up on the surface where, we're, where we are, where we're just getting tossed around and we're getting slammed. But as we are, we have this anchor of the soul. And in fact, there's a a wonderful sermon Charles Spurgeon preached on this text about the anchor. And he he pointed out that it's it's really the in a storm like the rollicking of a boat and the tossing around of it as that pulls on 
the rope or pulls on the chain of the anchor. It's that, that storm that actually makes then as the anchor gets jostled, that makes it go deeper down into the bottom, that makes it even more secure. He said that when an anchor has a good grip down below, the more the ship drags, the tighter its hold becomes. And I, I would want to encourage any of you who are going through suffering right now or who are seeking to minister to people who are suffering to not view suffering purely as an evil, but to know that as, as we get thrown around at the top of the sea, our anchor actually becomes more deeply embedded. It, it becomes stronger in its grip. And that it can have an effect. It should have an effect on our soul in a mysterious way that our suffering makes us more confident, makes us more secure in our standing with the Lord because we see how he is keeping us in the midst of it. So he says that we have this anchor, the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And anchors are only, they only work if I'm understanding anchors, right, they only work if they're grounded in the right place, right? Uh, location matters of where an anchor ultimately goes down. Uh, much depends on where it lands. And he says that this anchor for our souls has entered the inner place behind the curtain. This is where the metaphors get mixed, right? Anchors, you don't just like put them behind the curtains at your house or something, right? Like they go down into the water. But he says that this anchor has gone to the inner place behind the curtain, Briefly, I want to say what that curtain is. The, the Jewish recipients of this, and you may be familiar with this as well, they are very familiar with the temple, right, that had been built in Jerusalem by God's specifications. And in the middle of that temple, there was this holy of holies, right, this place where God's presence dwelled. But not just anybody could go in there. Uh, it was just that once a year, the high priest was able to go into that, after making the right sacrifices, was able to temporarily go into that holy place, was able to go behind the curtain that, that separated it from the rest of the temple, really from the rest of the world. Only once a year he was allowed to go in there. But what we're going to see a few chapters later in Hebrews is that the earthly temple a building with that holy place and the separation, it was a copy of the heavenly realities. That there is a heavenly place where God actually fully, completely dwells. And that we are not in our sin allowed to go to be there. Like we, we need a sacrifice to be able to enter into that holy place of God. And if you know anything about the cross, you probably remember that when Jesus died upon the cross, one of the amazing things that happened is in that earthly temple that the curtain was ripped into from top to bottom, right? And it was to show us, not just you can come into this room now, everybody, but it was to show us because of Christ's death, you can enter into that heavenly holy of holies. Like you can forever be in the presence of God and you don't even have to leave. You can go there and you can stay there, right? That priest had to leave. We can go because of Jesus into the heavenly place behind the curtain and stay. And then this final image he uses here in this text is he calls Jesus a forerunner on our behalf, right? That's what he says in verse 20. He calls Jesus a forerunner on our behalf who's gone behind the curtain, right? Into that inner place. And the author wants us to know that what we are called to believe in is not just these like abstract ideas, just like promises, like just words or just ideas. He wants us to know there is a human being in that holy place with God right now who has suffered for us and been raised from us, and his name is Jesus. He has gone there. When he has gone there, he is there now. He has gone there on our behalf. Because when Jesus died upon the cross, that wasn't the end of his story. He was laid in a tomb, but then on the third day, a Sunday long ago, he was raised from the dead. 
And then we often forget he, 40 days later, ascended to heaven to enter this holy holies once for all, to be back with God the Father forever, right? And what this image of forerunner implies is that someday so will we, right? He has gone there, but he has not gone there to stay by himself. Like he is, a forerunner means there's more people coming behind, right? He has gone there and someday all of his people will go to be with him there. Uh, as we pass through the veil of death or as someday when he brings heaven to earth, we will someday once and for all be in the presence of God and of his people. Jesus is our forerunner. He has gone for us. And I love kind of the mixing even of this forerunner image with the anchor and the curtain because one thing I do know about anchors of ships is you don't toss them down when you can see the bottom yourself, right? Like, the place you put anchors down is you put them where they go deep down out of sight, correct? They go behind the veil, so to speak. They go down into the deep. And though they're out of sight, you know they're doing their work, right? And that is true of Jesus. I, I wondered, why, did he, why didn't he just say Jesus has gone past the curtain, uh, he said he has gone behind it. I think what he's trying to say there is, look, I know Hebrew Christians. I know Winona Lake Christians. We don't see Jesus right now. That doesn't mean he's not doing his job as the anchor, right? Like he has, go- he has those anchors descend into the sea out of sight. They do their job. Jesus has ascended to heaven out of sight, but he is doing his job as the anchor of our soul. Like he, he is there with God and he is bringing us to God. He is our forerunner that someday we may as well. In closing, I, I wanted to mention this came to, to mind last night. I was remembering, I know many of you are not on Twitter. I don't even recommend necessarily getting on Twitter, but there's some redeemable parts of Twitter. There's one account uh, that I like by a brother. He's a pastor. His name is Isaac Adams. Uh, and he Amidst the, the mess that is Twitter, he has these tweets that almost every day, not every day, but most days, he tweets this almost same exact line, this almost verbatim day to day. And it always, whenever I see it, it is ministers to my soul. He, he writes this simple line. He says, Christian, we're one day closer to heaven. And he says it again the next day. Christian, we're one day closer to heaven. And the next day, Christian, we're one day closer to heaven. How true that is. Like how exciting that is in the midst of our sufferings. What great hope we have in the person of Jesus that we are one day closer to heaven. And our our forerunner Jesus is slowly drawing us there, isn't he? He's slowly drawing us to be with him, with God the Father forever. There, there's legend, I don't know if this is true or not, it's not in the Bible anywhere, but there's legend that that priest who would go into the holy place once a year, uh, that when he would go into that place that they would tie a rope around his foot. I don't know if some of you have heard this before, or they would say that he would put bells on the end of his, his robe. Uh, but the reason they would do that would be, is not a fun thing to think about. They were imagining if he gets in there and God, being in the presence of God, he is struck dead. Like, none of us are supposed to go in there, so like, what are we going to do? So it was a way that if they hear a thud and then silence, uh, that they could pull this brother out, that they could get him out of the Holy of Holies. So there's this rope tied to the priest uh, who, that they could pull him out in case of death. And I, I was thinking about that because this image of the anchor being in the holy place and then him being our forerunner who's drawing us to the Holy of Holies, I, I was imagining the reverse of that. 
that in the heavenly temple, we have a priest, and we're going to learn much more about his priestly role in the weeks and months ahead. But we have a priest who has gone into the Holy of Holies of heaven permanently, who has no threat of death. But in a real sense, it's like he, by rope, is, a tie, is tied like an anchor to his people, right? And he is slowly, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, he is pulling us to heaven, right? He is pulling us to the presence of God. It is not something that we do by ourselves, but we must be connected with him. And when we are, we can be sure that he is drawing us to himself and that by doing that, he is drawing us to God once and for all. This text has given rise to many hymns, and I just wanted to end with two lines of a song, uh, How Firm a Foundation. I love that, that in that song, it says, What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? He cannot say more than he has, right? He has promised to bless us in Christ. He has sworn to keep his promise. Let's take him at his word and let's persevere in faith. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for you.